electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange on what's the last day of what's been a wild and unforgettable year. Take a look at a chart of the Dow since January. This tells the story. We started the year with the index around 28,500 and whoosh, just three months later, we plunged to 18,213, the intraday low for the year on March 23rd. 10,000 points a race just like that. From there, of course, the rebound took hold, and with a new army of retail investors pouring in, it's been nearly a straight line up ever since, with just a small blip in November. Yesterday, we closed at a new record, 30,409, up 6% for the year, not too shabby, and up a whopping 66% from the lows. The Dow also saw some big changes this year. Exxon, Pfizer, Raytheon were swapped out in favor of Salesforce, Amgen, and Honeywell. And these dramatic moves weren't obviously contained to the Dow. Look at some of the other major averages. The S&P 500 up 15% this year and 70% up from the bottom in March. The index hit 2191 at the lows. We're at 37.32. But the strongest of all, of course, has been the Nasdaq up 43%. 43% for the year on top of last year's 35% gain. That's incredible. And off the lows, it's up 93%. Still, investors haven't fled safe havens like bonds and gold. The 10-year yield, well, we remember this one, making history and breaking below 1% for the first time ever right here during the show. We started 2020 at 1.92%. We now sit at 0.92%. That's a full percentage point drop. Gold, meanwhile, up 24%, having its best year in a decade, and we won't even mention Bitcoin. The flip side of all this is the dollar, dropping about 7% on the year. For more on all of this, let's bring in Rick Santelli. Hi, Rick. Hi, Kelly. And indeed, it has been an unbelievable year for Treasuries. And I know that Bill Griffith and I always used to tease each other when we talked about the VIX because we would use percentage terms, and I'm not sure that was the best way to go, especially not interest rates either. But today, I'm going to make an exception. We're at 157 in a two-year note. Look at the year-to-date chart. We are 146 basis points below that. A lot of that central bank and lowering of rates down 93%. Five-year. Five-year closed at 167. It had a low of 19. It's currently at 36, down 131 base points, down 78%. Tens, as Kelly pointed out, down 100 base points, down a little over 50%. 30-year bonds, and this is fascinating because obviously they are the darlings still having a positive rate, depending on what you think inflation is. They closed at 233. They're down 160, excuse me, down 69 basis points. Their low yield was 1%, almost right on the nose. They're currently at 164, down 30%. And the dollar index you see on the year-to-date chart, down 7% with a big asterisk. You want to know what the asterisk is? Well, consider that on March 20th, you see that big bounce March 20th? The dollar was almost at 103. From that high to where it is now, you double that minus 7. You're down about 13%. And I think that's quite important because there was a lot of people, of course, that really bought into that rally at that point. 
And boy, we really pulled the rug out from under them. 2021 is going to be a lot of foreign exchange uh, spread relationships changing. And of course, we'll be here on CNBC to help viewers and listeners understand all those changes. Kelly, back to you. Rick, what most sticks out in your mind? Was it, I mean, you know, I know in some ways it was a big event, the 10-year going below 1%. Now it seems rather mundane. We're just parked here. I mean, what, what to you was kind of the, you look back at 2020 and what moment encapsulates it? Oh, I think the, the moment that encapsulated it for me is uh, seeing a 50 basis point low in, in a 10-year note, seeing a 1% low in a 30-year mm. bond. You know, I remember 1985 was the first time bonds traded through par. Uh, their yields at one point were in the high teens. Uh, we have just basically been in a market where rates have fallen down pretty much every year for the last dozen years, and it can't go on forever. I'm not going to be a predictor here, Kelly. I'm telling you, with the kind of spending the globe is doing, with the kind of debt we're racking up, with the debt to GDP and the calibration of growth around the globe, there's going to be a payday here where you have to pay the man, and those deficit numbers are large. And I don't think it's going to be 2021. I think that's going to be a big year, and rates will go up. But I think we have a longer runway before we really experience some of that pain and the notion that Treasury is going to have to ante up. And servicing the debt is going to be a really huge part of the budget at some point in the future. Yeah, what a delicate dance, an exit dance uh, that's going to be uh, for the time being. Rick, thank you, sir. Happy New Year, Rick Santelli. Turning now to what's in store for 2021, my next guests are here with their top ideas. Let's bring in Alan Boomer. He's the managing partner and chief investment officer at Momentum Advisors. And Robert Pavlik is senior portfolio manager at Dakota Wealth Management. Alan, I'll start with you. Favorite plays and names for 2021? I mean, not only are we coming off a monster performance for the market, NASDAQ especially, but as Rick just mentioned, I, we're talking about maybe the Fed starting to taper this year. Who knows what interest rates are going to do? So what's your best advice? So first of all, thank you so much for having me. It's certainly been an interesting year in 2020. And I think right now sentiment is really positive. And this year was dominated, as you mentioned, by the NASDAQ, by companies that trade at, at insane multiples, companies that in some cases aren't even profitable. And so I think 2021 is going to be a return to value. I think that there will be a big focus on earnings, a big focus on stocks that trade at a low multiple, and a big focus on dividends. You guys talked a lot about low interest rates. There's a handful of stocks that are trading at 3 4% dividend yields, and I think those stocks will be really attractive in 2021. Feel free to name them. Yeah, so there's a couple of stocks that really missed the party. Verizon is one. Verizon's a stock that really has not performed this year. It has a 4.1% dividend yield. It trades at a, a, a PE multiple that's you know 11 or 12 times next year's earnings. Uh, another is Bristol Myers Squibb. It's a company that you know this year a lot of the companies that were really focused on COVID-19 vaccines have been in focus. Uh, BMY is not in that space, but at the same time, they've got some really profitable drugs and they have a pretty good development pipeline ahead of them. And their stock has a 4% dividend yield and they're only paying out about 25% of their earnings in dividends. So I think that dividend feels really safe. And then finally, I'd say, look at some of the smaller regional banks. I like regions financial. Again, the banks have been a sore spot in 2020, largely because of their commercial loans and the, the fact that a lot of small businesses uh, are closing. And so I think that now that we've got a reopening trade 
these regional banks look a lot more interesting and in regions in particular trades at less than book value. You're paying 0.9 times their book value. Yeah, you almost take it for granted uh, with financials these days. Why would I pay above book? Uh, Bob, let me turn to you. I know Boeing is one of your picks here. So uh, that couple of others that pop up on your screen, uh, you know, why are make the case for those being places that investors should turn now? Well, the economy is going to grow next year, but it's not going to go to the four and to five percent typical expansion growth in GDP. The economy is going to grow somewhere between three to three plus percent next year because of the damage that's been done in 2020. So I, I think you have to sort of barbell your portfolio. You have to continue to have an overweight to things like technology and, con- and consumer discretionary. People are con- going to continue to spend. People are going to continue to look for growth. They're not going to continue to switch to value like everybody is saying because the the growth is not going to be there. There's going to be fits and starts next year. The first part of the year, you're going to see the strength in the second quarter, then into the third quarter. Then we're going to see a little bit of concern that the vaccine's not getting out fast enough. People aren't taking their second shots. But then there's going to be a realization that growth is there, and then we're going to have a good quarter of the rest of the year. So then I think you have to look at what's going to happen. There's going to be growth in things like industrials and basic materials. So Boeing fits into the industrial trade. The stock is going to earn $13.50 in 2023. So if you equate that to what happened in 17, the stock is going to go from about 199, which is my buy entry point, to about $300. That's that's a very decent return, 50%. And so there's another name in basic yeah. material that I like. It's Newcore, Steel Company, plays right into the reopening trade. This stock actually personifies value. Stock trades at about 14 times the stock is going to see its earnings grow about 20%, revenue about 10%. They they pay 3.1% dividend yield, and the stock and the company definitely covers it with a free cash flow. Well, we got to move along, but Bob, I love I love the enthusiasm. You say Boeing's going to earn $13.50 in 2023. I mean, come on. So, yeah. You bet they're going to. I don't know. Everybody, they just had on, on Fast Money, everybody's booking on, you know, booking, uh, all the airline companies. Well, these people are going to have to fly on something. All these planes have been parked out in the desert or parked on the runways. I'm just companies saying, are going it, to look for it, cheaper it ways to get people from A 13, to B, and 20, Boeing is the one to do it on. Thirteen seventy. I just like it. It's just they're going to thirteen fifty in twenty twenty three, and maybe they will. Uh, guys, thank you both uh, for coming on today. Talk about how to play these Happy markets in twenty twenty one. We do appreciate it. You too. Alan Boomer and Bob Pavlik. As we head into the new year, first up on the docket are Tuesday's Senate runoff races in Georgia. Incumbent Republican Senators David Perdue and Kelly Loeffler are hoping to fend off challengers John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock to retain control of the Senate. Could be crucial for markets. For more, I'm joined by Tony Fratto. He's the founding partner at Hamilton Place Strategies and former White House Deputy Press Secretary under President George W. Bush. He's also a CNBC contributor. Tony, it's good to see you. And I, I mean, let me just start with what is the latest, whether you want to call it odds, you know, thinking, yeah. the whispers about what's going to happen on Tuesday. I saw some pretty big lines uh, in Georgia today. Yeah, look, obviously the early voting is another theme down there that we're going to see. I think it's that's closing. Uh, I think tomorrow uh, is the last day for uh, for early voting down there. Uh, you know, the, every poll that you look at uh, says this is a toss up. It's all well within the margin of error. It's it, it is a real repeat of the November 3rd election. Uh, I think a lot of people were expecting 
you know, uh, Democratic turnout to overperform uh, in November. I think what we learned was that Republican turnout uh, performed very well, too. I think both parties did an amazing job of turnout. So they had huge turnout, both in early voting, absentee, and on Election Day. And I think you're going to see the accumulation of that today. And it's going to be a very, very close race. And, you know, turnout... If it's a function of money, uh, this is the most expensive uh, election in the history of mankind. There's never been anything like this, literally hundreds of millions of dollars being spent down there. So, uh, look, if, if because of there was some under-expectation of Republican turnout today, I, my, my expectation is that it's probably a slight lean for uh, for Purdue and Leffler, uh, the, the two Republican candidates. Uh, but that's, you know, th these are guesses at this point, Kelly. Yeah. And we've got so much at stake as well. I mean, it is interesting to me that we don't see the markets moving more on whatever you want to call it, the polls, the odds, maybe because the polls are untrustworthy and there's not a whole lot else to look to. Maybe because, like you said, it is just a straight toss up. So we have to wait and see the outcome. But, you know, a Democrat versus Republican controlled Senate would seem to make a big difference in terms of uh, President Biden's agenda and what gets done on COVID, uh, along with a host of other issues. It's not a blue wave. Obviously, but still a Democratic control of now the presidency and the Senate would be much more significant uh, than if it's split, right? Very much so. I think you know, it, we, actually, we actually have an example of that in live time this week, even just with the $2,000, you know, top up uh, in, the, in the COVID relief bill. There's no question, even if, you know, if, Republic, if Democrats had control of the Senate, you would see that $2,000 top up on the floor today. So the majority leader of the Senate is able to control what goes on the floor and in what ways it goes on the floor. And, you know, so Leader McConnell uh, chose to pair it with uh, some other pieces of legislation that Democrats aren't going to want to vote for. So controlling the floor is, is super important. Um, it will change the ambitions, I think, for, for Democrats if they have control of both houses, even if they're razor thin uh, uh, margins. I think you're going to see the pro the progressive wing get a lot more ambition ambitious on the kinds of things that they want to do and the kinds of things that they're talking about, especially in, in the area of energy and climate policy, tax policy, health care, uh, and a few other areas. Um, yeah. But the, the fact that they're razor thin in both houses, though, you know, it, it, it probably is moderating. It just brought, brings these moderates in both the Democrats and the Republican Party to the fore. They're going to be the difference makers. Yeah, it, I, I take your point. I, I think that must be what investors are thinking, that in some ways it's just different shades of purple, although uh, we'll see. I guess the final thing I wanted to ask you is about Senator Hawley being one of the latest people to say he'll contest the Electoral College vote. And reading in the journal this morning, trying to follow uh, different scenarios here, and the, they're explaining that you know this could be a situation in which I think it's if, if a, a senator and a congressman in, in a particular state contest it, uh, then the whole chamber gets to vote on it or somehow the vice president could become the deciding vote. And yeah. I, there's a lot of twists and turns potentially here. But I, I'm, I'm curious what you think is really going on. I mean, is this Hawley positioning for 2024? Um, does it have anything to do with Georgia in terms of its timing? What, what do you think? I don't think it has so much to do with Georgia. I really think it, it is this, uh, you know, this race to see who will inherit uh, this, you know, this block of Trump voters that we, we see and we saw again uh, in on November 3rd. It's a very durable set of voters. And, you know, the, so, the, so the Trump vote is big. It is it does control the Republican Party if it not is if it isn't, in fact, the Republican Party right now. And I think you're going to see people like Ted Cruz Josh Hawley and others to see who will inherit 
uh, that, you know, that vote. And I think there's a big competition for it. I think it leads them to do some really dumb things. And this is one of them. You know, there, there is nothing is going to change uh, on uh, on Tuesday uh, with the Electoral but College. But this it, is Tony? Happened. Yeah. I mean, if Holly, if, if enough people, like you said, this is a huge base that is up for grabs. And it would make sense for them to say, listen, we're coming to, to kind of take the leadership uh, position here. So could that throw a last minute wrench into the works? I think it's just going to be a debate for the a, a day of debate on that. I think the votes are going to be there to certify the election. I think you have enough members, including, you know, Leader McConnell. You saw a statement out by uh, Nebraska Senator Ben Sass today, uh, you know, which I think he was speaking for the Senate Republican caucus today with his statement yeah. that, you know, this is grandstanding and it's not a direction that we should go. And I think that's where the majority of Senate Republicans are. We'll see. But uh, it's, it's very interesting. Uh, a perfect coda uh, to the year. Tony, thanks so much. Good to see you today. Tony thanks. Fratto. Coming up, a new COVID variant is spreading in the U.S. Uh, we have new highs for hospitalizations and deaths. The vaccine rollout is moving incredibly slow. We'll get the latest on where things stand. Plus, we'll speak with the president of one company that helps hospitals and vaccine manufacturers with logistics. What does he think could be done to speed things up? We'll ask. And chips taking center stage in the U.S.-China tech rivalry. A look at where that could lead in the new year. Stay with us. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. California is now reporting its first case of the COVID variant from the UK. That's right on the heels of Colorado's first case reported yesterday. And COVID-19 cases overall continue to climb across the country with more than 229,000 new cases yesterday. Here's a look at the seven-day averages of three of the hardest hit states. They're once again in the Northeast. New York's hospitalizations have climbed 15%, cases up 4%, Connecticut hospitalizations up 3%, the positivity rate is 6%, and in Massachusetts, hospitalizations are up 11% and the positivity rate is just over 7%. All this, of course, as the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines are slowly being administered. Just over 2 million Americans have received the shot so far. That's far short of earlier forecasts for having 20 million Americans vaccinated by now. Joining me is Dr. John Torres to talk about these efforts, uh, doctor, and and what can be done to speed up the progress at this point. Uh, Should we do what the UK is going to be doing with the the next uh, vaccine and start just at least trying to get the first dose to more people instead of worrying about the double dose right away? 
You know, and right now, at this point, a lot of experts are saying we shouldn't really be doing that, mainly because we don't know how much protection that first dose gives you. Well, Pfizer came out with some information saying the first dose, yeah, we think it's around 52%, and it seemed to last for 21 days, but we didn't study it beyond that, so we don't know if it lasts beyond it. We do know that the double dose gives you that 95% protection, and that can last well into a couple of months. And so I think at this point, giving people two shots because we're giving them to the most vulnerable and those that are most likely to catch COVID is an important step. But I think we can also take this a step forward. And if you look at some other countries, they're doing essentially mass mass vaccination events across the country, which we're not doing here yet. I think we're going to get to that point. And I think that you're going to see that happen early on in January, at least by mid-January, late January. And so, you know, getting it distributed is one thing, but getting shots in arm in arms is that one step we need to make sure that we're doing in order to get people protected, Kelly. Yeah, it's interesting. So, you know, we're at a point where those efforts are lagging. The case count is up. We have the new variant. Um, what do we know about the new variant? It was interesting that part of the reason why the UK picked up on it so early is that they just do more, I think it's genetic t- testing or sequencing of COVID than we do. So, you know, by a, by a multiple times over, it's just another place in which we're kind of lagging. So it's quite possible that's been here in this country already. Oh, it's definitely possible it's been here in the country already. And to a certain extent, closing out the UK and making sure that people aren't traveling to other places is a little bit like closing the barn door once the, ho- the horses have already gotten out. Because at this point, you know, I'm in Colorado, and the place where it was first detected is about 30 miles away from me. It's the assisted living center. These people don't travel. So it came from somewhere in the community, which means that it's already here in the U.S. But we're not surveying enough to understand where these variants might be. And like you mentioned, they are doing that in the U.K., Now, there is a distinction. People are getting these PCR tests. That's the nasal swab. That tells them whether they have COVID, but it doesn't really tell you the variant. They need to do much more sophisticated testing. And what they need to do is take a certain sample, maybe half a percent or percent of those people, and look to see if that might be happening in the communities. We're not there yet. They're trying to gin that up, but we're we're a year into this pandemic, and we still haven't gotten to that point, which is concerning. So where are we going to be in another two to three weeks' time? I mean, what's fundamentally going to change to speed up uh, the vaccination effort? Well, I think you're going to see, number one, the wrinkles being ironed out of the vaccination distribution. And like your graphic mentioned, you know, they expected 20 million distributed by now. Only less than 3 million people have actually got the vaccines. If you listen to Operation Warp Speed, they talk about vaccines that were distributed, not shots in arms. And so we need to make sure that we get that good pace up there. You have a graphic there for what's going on now. We need much higher pacing than that in order to get people vaccinated. Some experts are saying if we don't speed things up, we're talking fall before we get people vaccinated. But other experts are saying, you know, we think this is going to work out over the next few weeks. Administrations are going to change. And we think there's going to be a much bigger effort to push the vaccines out quicker. Kelly. Yeah. No, we uh, we hope so. Don't want it to be all year again. Dr. John Torres, thanks for your time today. We do appreciate it. Thank you. Happy New Year. Let's get more on the logistics of administering those new COVID vaccines right now. Mike Alkire is president of Premier. They're a healthcare supplies chain solutions company that works with vaccine makers, hospitals, and other healthcare systems. Mike, thanks for joining us. So you see very much what we're talking about here in terms of the rollout and some of the issues with it. Uh, What do you think people need to do to improve the the outcome? Uh, Thanks first, Kelly, for having me. so it's kind of interesting. So the, the numbers that, you know, obviously we've all been seeing is that we've had about two and a half million folks that have been vaccinated since December 14th. 
Um, we've distributed about 11.5 million dollars. I'm sorry, 11.5 million doses of the vaccine. Um, you know, there seems to be obviously a disconnect between um, it, you know, being distributed to the states and then actually being implemented into the patients. Um, we think that, quite frankly, we've got to do a better job of bringing more uh, capability online, meaning we've got to improve the communication between the, the, the public health officials in the states and the, the, the caregivers who are actually giving the vaccines. Let's make that cleaner. Um, secondarily, is if you think just about pure numbers, right? So if we've done about 2.5 million vaccines uh, over the last couple of weeks, that means we're doing somewhere around 200,000 a day. We know that we're bringing on 200 million vaccines in the first quarter, 200 million doses of the vaccine in the first quarter. That means we're going to have to figure out a way to ramp up to doing two, 2 million, almost 10 times the amount of vaccines that are actually being implemented today. We're going to have to figure out a way to do that in the future. I've been on calls with various executives yeah. of our healthcare systems, and quite frankly, they think that we need to also, you know, uh, bring the CVSs and the Walmarts and the uh, the, the Walgreens into the picture to help us with obviously dispensing the vaccine as well. Absolutely. And I mean, just so people kind of get the scope of the challenges here, you have a five point plan. You just mentioned some elements of it, but I look at supply chain issues, the transparency stuff that you mentioned, diversifying production, you know, in all of these different things, Mike, there's no way we can speed this up in the near term. Yeah, I, you know, a couple things. First of all, as you alluded to the five-point plan, that's more broadly, you know, as we think about the supply chain. We've got this big issue in 2021, uh, but if you look back in 2020 and what kind of got us here, um, you hit a few of them. I mean, one of the things is that from an FDA perspective, we need to have much better transparency on where just supplies in general and generic drugs in general are being produced. We have way too much dependence uh, specifically on yeah. China and other places in Southeast Asia. Uh, we've got to diversify the production of those products to other areas. We've got to do more domestic manufacturing of those uh, uh, products. And we've got to use technology more effectively. So, you know, to, to um, understand where we have, you know, potentially shortages that are occurring uh, and become hypervigilant mm -hmm. to identify those shortages and then obviously, you know, uh, increase production to ensure our, our citizens have access to products. And, and to your point, it's not as if we have to do all of these things overnight, but uh, certainly even figuring out just how to distribute this more quickly is going to be a big, big effort. Uh, Mike, thanks so much for your time today, telling us a little bit about the, how deep these challenges run. Mike Elkire of Premier. Coming up, this stock is having a rough week, down more than 30%, down double digits today. One short seller is calling its product outdated. We'll reveal the name next. Plus, a look at sector winners and losers this year and the stocks that carried and crushed them. We're back in a couple minutes on The Exchange. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Let's get a quick check on your markets today. Pretty narrow range to close out what has not been a narrow range this year. Uh, Dow down four points right now. S&P fractionally higher. NASDAQ's down 28. And in terms of the sectors, it's pretty mixed. 
Financials are leading the way up half a percent right now, and energy is lagging, uh, as has been much of the story this year. It's down 1%. Some of the individual movers include shares of Fubo, which is sliding after Carousel Capital became the latest to short the stock. Carousel describing Fubo's TV distribution model as outdated and saying the company's business model is structurally unprofitable. It's down 17 percent today. It's now down 35 percent this week. On the flip side, shares of Western Digital are soaring today. No particular news, but traders are saying investors could just be piling into the chip maker uh, into the end of the year. You often see this little chase at year end. It's up 11 percent today and more than 20 percent this month. And another day, another fresh high for Bitcoin, crossing above 29,300 this morning before reversing lower. Yeah, we're about 600 points off that level right now. Let's get to Morgan Brennan now for a CNBC News update. Hi, Morgan. Hey, Kelly. Happy New Year. Here is what is happening at this hour. Take a look at this. These are those voting lines in Georgia. They look like the ones that you discussed earlier. More than 100 people standing in the rain outside this polling site in Cobb County. Today is the last day of early voting ahead of Tuesday's Senate runoff. Target is recalling nearly half a million infant items that could choke or pinch a baby. It's because of potentially faulty snaps and about 180,000 cat and jack swimsuits and nearly 300,000 Cloud Island infant rompers. President Trump is flying back to Washington. He ended his Florida vacation a day early than scheduled. The White House has given no reason for the change. And in Hong Kong, media tycoon Jimmy Lai is back in custody. A court revoked his bail. He will remain behind bars until at least February on charges of fraud and endangering national security. And that is your CNBC News update at this hour. Kelly, if I had one New Year's resolution, it's that we start ending these news updates on a positive note because I think everybody could use a little more cheer as we head into 2021. Am I right? I was I thought you were going to say on a Star Trek note and I was like, mm mm. Well, I'll save that for next year. (laughs) We'll go back to that next year. (laughs) Morgan, thank you so much. (laughs) Happy Happy New New Year. Year. Morgan Brennan back at headquarters. Let's take a look at some of the standout sectors this year. It should come as no surprise that technology led the way. It was up 41% in 2020, followed by consumer discretionary and communication services. You can see all the chips showing the year-to-date gains on the losing side. Energy in the bottom position down 37%. And look at the second worst in real estate was only down 6.5%. The financials down about 5%. And as for who is powering these moves, well, in tech, NVIDIA, PayPal, AMD, they all led the way. Xerox, the biggest laggard over in consumer discretionary, Tesla, of course, but also Etsy and L Brands were big winners. Tesla up 750% this year. Norwegian and Carnival, no surprise, they were the worst. And in energy, there were no names that ended in the green this year while Occidental and Marathon were the worst performers with declines of more than 50%. Still ahead, the key part of the new stimulus bill that could save the craft distilling industry. We'll talk to the president of Michter's coming up. But first, Mike Santoli and Steve Leisman tell us their key moments for the markets and the Fed this year and the catalyst, catalyst they're watching for 2021. Stay with us.
Welcome back. 2020 was unconventional by any stretch, and that includes what we saw from the markets and the Federal Reserve. Steve Leisman and Mike Santoli had a front row seat to all of it. They join me now with some of the big moments from this year and expectations for next. Steve, let's start with you. And this, I, I love this question for both of you. And we kind of mentioned this with Rick earlier. But Steve, for you, what was the most significant moment for the Fed this year? Uh, well, Kelly, you know, you'd think it was the Fed going to zero, announcing a new round of masses, massive asset purchases. That would be the highlight. But those were obviously huge, but they had already been done in the last recession. The real new ground, the game-changing decisions that will last, the ones to buy corporate bonds and municipal bonds and eventually loan to individual corporations where the Fed had never gone before. I remember a speech where Boston Fed President Eric Rosengren detailed the Fed's next move if it needed to offer more stimulus when rates were already at zero. Here's what he said. This was on March 6. In such a case, we should allow the central bank to purchase a broader range of securities or assets. That was like a week or two before the Fed eventually went to zero and a few months before it eventually did that. The Fed venturing into new territory of buying corporate bonds had a profound impact on stocks. Sintoli's going to talk about that in a second. By eliminating risks and reducing spreads, even though the Fed ended up buying very little, but it brought the central bank right into the area that it may regret because of the political implications. You saw that just recently in the fight over the latest round of stimulus where Senator Pat Toomey moved to limit the Fed's ability to do that type of lending again. And then the incoming administration argued, hey, we should have the same flexibility as the previous one. I think a debate over how far the Fed can and should go now will be a feature of every recession from now on, Kelly. But I love that you picked the Eric Rosengren moment, and it, especially because we asked you and Mike this question separately, Stephen. You both put your finger on kind of the exact same thing. So stay right there, Mike. Oh, your I didn't know that. moment did have to do. I didn't know that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Mike, tell us what you think the most uh, significant or dramatic moment was. Yeah, the, the specific moment that I point to is Boeing's debt offering of April 30th. So March 23rd, ah. after the Rosengren uh, comments, of course, the Fed did come out and more or less say we will buy a fuller range of assets, including corporate bond ETFs. Uh, when Boeing was able to sell $25 billion in new debt uh, to private investors, oversubscribed at lower yields than expected, the, the stock market was already up about 20 or 25 percent from its lows. But the big question was, is there going to have to be a retest of the lows? Is that just a dead cap bounce? Can corporate America avoid a, a default spiral? And I think that bond offering from Boeing basically told people for Boeing of all companies, right, not just grounded by the pandemic, but even previously having its struggles. I think it told you that the capital markets were open. Bond spreads came way down. The credit markets have supported equity valuations this entire run uh, that we've had up to these highs. And the stock market really never looked back. A few days later, uh, you know, just slightly curled lower. And now we're up about a thousand points in the S&P from then. Hey, Mike. Yep. So there you Mike, have it. Do, do so you think go you ahead, would, Steve. Yep. Yeah. I was just going to ask Mike if he thinks he would be maybe a little bit balding, maybe have his hair down to his uh, to his shoulders, have his tie off and be in a very different reporting right now about the market this year if the Fed hadn't stepped in and did what it did. You would think so. I, I mean, I think everyone without, you know, before that happened and before the market fully embraced it, 
I think you were people were using 2008 as a template here. And they said, okay, fine, maybe this was the first leg down, but then the painful grind comes and the real economy uh, struggles and sputters and does not come off the mat for a while. And that didn't happen. And I totally agree with you, Steve, that the way that the policymakers short-circuited this recession made it a flash recession in a way, at least in terms of uh, the the financial market perception of it. It's going to create this template down the road. It says, wait, this, this is in the toolbox. Why aren't we using it? A hundred percent. Dave Zervos had a similar note about that today, Steve. So for all of the people who say this now means that this is a Fed we can count on to basically do anything it can dream up to combat future downturns. What do you say about that? And then I guess separately, the real question for 2021 is how do they start to taper it and exit all of this? But both of those are going to be very tricky issues. I'll say very quickly, I didn't agree with what Senator Pat Toomey did on the short term basis. I think the Main Street facility should have been extended. I think it was doing some good. I think he might have done the Fed some long-term good here. I, I don't think it's good for the Fed to be in this position of being the one that the fiscal authority turns to to be the swing factor here. I think this ought to be something, if bonds need to be bought, if stuff needs to be done, the Treasury ought to do it, and it shouldn't really involve the Federal Reserve. I think as far as the Fed should go is buying Treasuries, buying agency-backed mortgages. I think that's enough. But what you don't want is, as a central bank, to be in that um, in that position of being of being the political football there and the swing factor, and and then have to be between this administration and that administration and this party and that party. Yeah, and Michael, give you a final word on that as people look to 2021, and Rick alluded to this earlier, but. Are we going to be talking about the Fed's exit as a big market risk, or is that going to be something that kind of gets punted and that it's status quo-y and the larger message that the Fed's in investors' corner is the predominant one? I think that question is probably farther down the line than it otherwise would be. And it does set up a little bit of a, of a war of perceptions, though, because the Fed is not going to be the one that's changing the conversation to an exit, I don't think. It's going to be about whether the markets overheat, whether the economy comes back faster than now anticipated, and you get some statistical lift in inflation readings. Is the market then going to just sort of over-anticipate that the Fed's going to come off this stance of saying we're not even thinking about changing policy? Uh, and and if, if they, in fact, get persuaded by the Fed that, hey, guys, we're, we're going to let things roll, uh, what does that mean for markets? I mean, just what kind of overheats from this starting point would we expect if, in fact, yeah. uh, that's what happens? Yeah, no, financial stability, you know, those kind of euphemisms start coming back maybe into the equation. Guys, thank you both. Uh, love having you both on to talk about this. Mike Santoli, Steve Leesman. Happy New Year, everybody. On the, these historic moves Happy. by the Fed. Still ahead, the semiconductor ETF, the SMH, posting gains of more than 54% this year, and it's set to take center stage in the ongoing tech rivalry between the U.S. and China. Those details and the steps that we have planned to take to win the battle, she said. That's next. Welcome back to The Exchange. Take a look at the semiconductor ETF, which is up more than 126% from its annual low. Chips are quickly becoming the focus in the ongoing tech war between the U.S. and China as well. Josh Lipton joins us now with that story. Josh? So, Kelly, the U.S.-China tech rivalry is red hot right now, and chips are front and center in that battle, and for good reason. They are the big brains in our smartphones, our PCs, and our data centers, as well as next-generation technologies that we care a lot about, powering 
5G, AI, and facial recognition. So where are chips being made right now? Well, some American firms still do make chips in the United States, like Intel, Micron, and Texas Instruments. But today, only about 12% of chips are now produced within this country. And that is down sharply over the past couple decades and expected to slip even more over the next decade. Meanwhile, China's share, 15%. And it's expected to grow strongly over the next 10 years thanks to heavy government subsidies. Taiwan's share, by the way, 22%. That's mostly TSMC. I checked in with tech analyst Patrick Moorhead. He says shifting production here could bring real advantages, physical security, meaning the U.S. government wants to make sure that American companies always have access to the chips they need. If they're built here, then they have that. Cybersecurity, chips built overseas could be easier to compromise and hack, and preventing IP theft. If chips are made closer to our adversaries, then so the thinking goes, there's higher risk of theft. Earlier this year, there was an important announcement on this front. TSMC saying it's going to build an advanced $12 billion chip factory in Arizona. Construction is going to start next year, production beginning in 2024. The facility is going to utilize TSMC's 5 nanometer technology. In other words, developing the most powerful and efficient chips out there. Kelly, back to you. It's hard to say whether developing more of our uh, vaccine and pharma infrastructure, or this issue on the chip supply is going to be the more pressing one for this country for the next few years, Josh, but it's certainly up there. Thank you, sir. Josh Lipton with the State of Play. Still ahead, check out this mystery chart. This retailer getting hammered at the start of the pandemic in the U.S., but here it's up 173% from its 52-week low. We'll dig into the rebound in consumer names and whether there's more room to run still. And another segment of discretionary also getting slammed this year, craft distillers losing $700 million in sales. We're going to talk to the president of Michter's Distillery about their year and the pivots they've made right after this quick break. Welcome back to The Exchange. In many ways, 2020 was the year of the consumer. Consumer spending has been one of the bright spots in this uh, recovery following a massive decline in the spring. And while November retail sales were down for the month, it was a sixth monthly year-on-year gain. On CNBC, Bank of America CEO Brian Moynihan was optimistic about the consumer. When you look at what they're spending year to date, they've spent more in 2020 than they did in 2019, and that is now across $2.7 trillion of money moved by our consumers. Uh, the optimism was clear in the market with the retail ETF up 40% this year, with names like Wayfair, Stitch Fix, RH, and L Brands all doubling, seeing gains of more than 100%. Now, we've seen a bit of a slowdown recently with consumer confidence dipping in the past few months as COVID cases rise again and some cities close parts of their economy again. Uh, people are hoping Washington's new stimulus funds will turn that around and consumer can remain strong in 2021. Sticking with the space, it's been a tough year for, cra- tough year for craft distillers, the industry losing nearly a billion dollars in sales this year because of the pandemic. But there are some bright spots. Take a look at these. Michter's Distillery says its overall sales are up more than 30% this year as it pivoted to e-commerce and curbside delivery, helping it avoid furloughing any of its employees. For more, I'm joined by Joe Magliocco. He is the president of Michter's Distillery and founder of Chatham Imports. Joe, it's great to have you. I mean, is that right? You're up 30% this year? 
Yeah, actually, we're up 36 percent. And thank you so much for having me on, Kelly. Uh, yeah, I mean, our, our team uh, in Louisville and our sales team really pivoted and did a great job this year. And I think a lot of other people in the industry have done a great job this year as well. I, I honestly can never remember nearly as challenging a year. Uh, it's been devastating. I mean, craft distillers have furloughed 43 percent of their people. Uh, the American Distilling Institute did a survey and um, uh, uh, something like uh, two-thirds of craft distillers expected that they couldn't keep going another uh, six months unless things improved a lot. So uh, it's been a tough year, and especially for the on-premise sector. In, the, in our industry, we talk about the on-premise channel, which is restaurants, bars, hotels, um, and uh, it, it's just been devastating for our friends that we've been calling on for years in that area. Um, you know, Nielsen tracks certain restaurants and bars, and the restaurants and bars that they track, um, the, the business fell off a cliff between February and March this year. It was down over 80%. And quite honestly, that doesn't right. surprise us because we've seen um, a tremendous loss. Uh, our, our distributors and importers uh, that we speak to have lost 80% of their business uh, on-premise as well. But how do we go from being down 80% on premise to you guys being up 36% on the year? I mean, is that how much people are drinking at home? <laughs> uh, no. Well, I mean, look, people are people generally are drinking more at home, um, but uh, it, it is not enough uh, to, to make up for the tremendous loss. I mean, we've had all these amazing restaurants, amazing hotels close. Um, uh, you know, online uh, has really been an area that we've concentrated on this year. Uh, you know, we're not a huge company. We never had an e-commerce manager until this year. Well, we, we suddenly had an e-commerce manager. We suddenly had an e-commerce team. Um, and, uh, you know, when you look at uh, online sales, um, according to IWSR, International Spirits and Wine Registry, um, uh, online sales are up about 42% in the countries they track this year. And, you know, specific uh, accounts, you know, uh, Wally's, one of the great retailers in the United States uh, based in Los Angeles, they're up over 300% this year. You know, uh, we concentrated on making our stuff more available through uh, e-commerce platforms like Amazon, like Drizzly. Drizzly was up 350% this year um, and a lot of others. Yeah. Yeah, I learned about Drizzly. Uh, You're right. I mean, these have been huge platforms and thank God for it because otherwise your business would have been devastated. So what does 2021 look like then in this kind of pivot and transition year? I know you guys also were able to avoid there was a huge uh, excise tax that was supposed to go up Jan 1. That's off the table, right? Yeah, yes, fortunately. And that 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 is really wonderful news to smaller distillers. you know, it, it, the tax level varies at different levels of production, but under 100,000 proof gallons, which is uh, where a lot of small distillers are, um, uh, uh, the tax was set to go up effective January 1. It was going to go up, uh, it was going to go up 400%. Um, and so that would have been really devastating to these uh, uh, smaller distillers that already hurt very badly. Um, but um, look, we're very hopeful about the vaccine. We're hopeful about, uh, uh, you know, uh, things improving. And, 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 you know, business yeah. coming back to one normal. Yeah. And uh, again, you're now able to handle it either way. It seems maybe that's yes. been a, a nice learning point of 2020. We're looking for some bright spots today. Joe, thanks so much for joining us and good luck with everything. Thank you so much, Kelly. Happy, healthy New Year. You too. Joe Magliocco of Michter's. All right, that does it for us on The Exchange this year. Up next on Power Lunch as a record year for IPOs comes to a close. We'll get a look at whether 2021 will see the same kind of action. I'll join Frank Holland for that right after this quick break.
You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.